This is Fact and Science Fiction, and I'm your host, Carly. Before I begin the episode, a little housekeeping. I want to thank a few people for reaching out and supporting the show. Uh, First, thank you to Jack on Facebook for recommending the podcast. Thanks to Kim underscore newbie for leaving a great and thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Angie from KCGeeks.com for reaching out as a blog focusing on Kansas City people. And lastly, I want to thank Catherine for being my first supporter on Patreon. I have some great news for the podcast in 2019. I'll be recording a live episode in Kansas City at Planet Comic Con in March. And then two weeks later, I'm going to Las Vegas again for another live episode at Clexicon. So I hope I can see some of you there. Um, One last housekeeping note, I want to apologize for getting James Glick's name wrong in the last episode. I kept calling him David for some reason, but I've linked correctly to his book in the show notes. Okay, that is all for housekeeping. Now it's on with the show. We can be introduced to a lot of complicated science topics through stories, but recently I've noticed that there's one topic that is popping up in stories that I've really liked recently, and that's climate change. I recently checked out 40 Signs of Rain by Kim Stanley Robinson. Robinson is a prolific author. While I just now started reading his work, I can recognize his titles from miles away from when I worked at at the bookstore. I heard his name again in Mary Roach's Packing for Mars book because he's really good at using science in his work, and he's really good about explaining science powerfully. And I'll let him explain one of the causes of climate change. This is the first paragraph of 40 Signs of Rain. The Earth is bathed in a floor of sunlight, a fierce inundation of photons, on average 342 joules per second per square meter. 4,185 joules, or one calorie, will raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. If all this energy were captured by the Earth's atmosphere, its temperature would rise by 10 degrees Celsius in one day. Luckily, much of it radiates back to space. How much depends on albedo and the chemical composition of the atmosphere, which vary over time. A good portion of Earth's albedo or reflectivity is created by polar ice caps. If polar ice and snow were to shrink significantly, more solar energy would stay on Earth. Sunlight would penetrate oceans previously covered by ice and warm the water. This would add heat and melt more ice in a positive feedback loop. That was Kim Stanley Robinson's first paragraph of his book, 40 Signs of Rain. And when the ice melts, the water gets warmer, which makes storms worse, sea levels rise, leading to a whole host of problems. I'm sure you've heard of the effects before. Other causes of climate change are carbon being stored in the atmosphere. Before the Industrial Revolution, most of our carbon emissions were were being absorbed by forests, woodlands, even savannas and coastal ecosystems. But as society has developed and destroyed these pristine forests and greenlands, less and less carbon is being stored. And that means we have to deal with it. And I could talk more about the chemical composition of the atmosphere and the effects of the loss of biodiversity. And I could tell you about what happens to the most vulnerable populations of humans, plants, and animals. But anyone can tell you that. Instead, I wanted to talk about a specific subgenre of science fiction that depicts Earth or some other facsimile to Earth and what we could learn from those works about adapting to climate change. 
Specifically, I believe that fiction will help us learn and accept holistic, large-scale changes we will need to make in this changing planet. But not just any science fiction. I wanted to talk about the specific subgenre that features nature. The genre is called eco-science fiction, like ecological. Sometimes it's called eco-fiction or maybe even eco-horror, depending on the author. If you thought defining science fiction can be messy, this one is way messier. It's ambiguous. Uh, It's labeled like, I know it when I see it. Typically, works in this genre take place in the future, when the current way we live has reached a breaking point, and so many changes have occurred that society looks and acts a lot differently. Or another example is in which climate change is only subtly hinted at, but the plot is a metaphor for climate change, such as nature fighting back or a return to nature. The line that connects all of these works is the environment or place. The place is like a main character. Sure, this can be the case in most fantastical novels and speculative fiction, and even in horror. In his article Dark Places, Ecology, Place, and the Metaphysics of Horror Fiction, Brad Thomas writes that horror fictions are very much about ambiance, place, surroundings, and environment. World building is a critical part of genre fiction because creators want their audience to picture the world. But in eco-fiction, it is even more important. The place is alive. Authors like Jeff Vandermeer, Kim Stanley Robinson, and J.G. Ballard. But I read works by authors like Naomi Oreskes and Leslie. So what can eco-fiction teach us about adapting to climate change? So what can eco-fiction teach us about adapting to climate change? Well, first, let's look at the science of climate change adaptation. Fact and Science Fiction is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the place for audiobooks. I recommend 40 Signs of Rain by Kim Stanley Robinson, about the near future when the world is faced with the devastating effects of climate change. It's like if the West Wing took place in the future during a day-after-tomorrow situation. You can download this book or another of your choosing for free by going to my special link, audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi. Or swipe to the show notes and click the link in there. Easy peasy. That's audibletrial.com slash fact and sci-fi. I have to admit some ignorance on my part. Until I started researching this episode, I didn't know that adaptation to climate change is an entire area of science, activism, and policy. And one section of climate change adaptation space is focusing on natural solutions to climate change. Natural solutions are a more holistic way of adapting society now in a way that works with the earth instead of trying to dominate it. It's accepting that the way we were doing things before is not going to help us now, such as hard engineering solutions like building taller levees or building more dams or rebuilding on floodplains. For this episode, I listened to America Adapts the Climate Change podcast, which features interviews with folks who work in climate science, climate justice, or organizations like the World Wildlife Fund. All these organizations and people have the same goal. How will the most people possible survive what is happening to this planet? And I think ecofiction writers are considering the same type of questions, and there are a few parallels between the two. 
Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway are two historians of science and technology, and they wrote a fiction novella called The Collapse of Western Civilization. In it, the narrator is a historian of the distant future, who is reflecting on the end of Western civilization due to the climate in 2093 and what led up to it. The book was published in 2014, and it's scary how in 2019, not only are their predictions pretty accurate, but it makes me nervous about their predictions for later in the century. In the novel, the narrator reflects on why the world nations succumbed to tragedy, even if they knew what was happening and why it was happening. And the narrator says that one reason is that scientists focused on their speciality, ignoring how all these different systems connected together to create the the changing climate. We encourage scientists to focus on their area and discourage scientists from speculating about areas they don't have a specialty in. And that worked for a really long time. But in a situation in which the entire planet is changing, affecting humans, plants, animals, there's got to be a lot more collaboration. Not to mention the divide that we have between the physical sciences like biology and the social sciences like sociology and psychology. The social components are addressed a lot in ecofiction because stories are about characters that readers have to relate to. Otherwise, they would just be statistics and numbers, right? One of the challenges of adapting to climate change is getting society as a whole to care about nature and to care about climate change more than our comfort. While the majority of the public believes climate change is real, knowledge itself doesn't become power like Sir Francis Bacon wanted us to believe. So, eco-fiction writers will try to scare us. I'm the biggest fan of Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, starting with the first book, Annihilation, and the movie that came out last year. I definitely have mentioned it before. In Annihilation, four scientists explore a changing landscape called Area X. This landscape was inspired by the very real St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge. And Brad Taubos says that Vandermeer uses the language of traditional naturalist writing at first when describing the flora and fauna. However, it's kind of like when you see the same word over and over again, and it starts to look weird and sound weird when you say it. It's the same in Area X. As you look and look, the environment looks less and less familiar. Annihilation is really the story about an alien life form slowly claiming and changing the Earth. It's a horrifying book, and it's beautiful. Jeff Vandermeer said we live on an alien planet filled with incredibly sophisticated organisms that we only partially understand. Our so-called smartphones and other advanced technology is incredibly dull and primitive next to the diversity and intensity of other life on Earth. And if we don't save it, we'll lose it by something taking it from us. And that kind of feeling of horror and concern is what real people are dealing with in the effects of climate change today. One of the real consequences of climate change that's already happening is forced migration. According to Wikipedia, climate migrants are people who are displaced due to sudden or gradual alterations in the natural environment related to at least one of the three impacts of climate change. Sea level rise, extreme weather events, and drought and water scarcity. That's four, Wikipedia. There are people on America Adapts who have had to leave their homes due to hurricanes and flooding. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, climate change shifts rainfall patterns, and with human alteration of the land such as engineering rivers and increased construction on floodplains, we're more at risk of flooding than ever before. 
Not to mention when sea levels rise, coastal cities like Miami are flooded dozens of times a year. This has already happened in a coastal part of Alaska. In Louisiana, the federal government is paying to relocate an entire community from an island that is slowly sinking underwater. And fiction tries to make sense of this, too. One work I really enjoyed last year was What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky by Leslie Arima. The short story takes place in a future when the main character helps people deal with trauma due to the effects of climate change. At this point in the speculative future, a lot of Europeans have had to migrate to Central Africa because their countries have been submerged. America has already had to deal with temporary displacement after our several 100-year storms in the last 10 years. Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Harvey, and Hurricane Maria. And then last year with the California wildfires. Natural adaptation activists don't want to simply rely on hard engineering solutions like levees and dams. What Arima's story tells me is that it will take more social programs to deal with these large groups of migrants and evacuees. There is residual trauma to process that will require social services. In 2011, in my hometown of Joplin, Missouri, an F5 tornado devastated a full third of our city, destroying a hospital, schools, and senior living centers, and killing over 160 people. And even eight years later, there are people still scared of storms. And that was just one storm. Often when large groups of people migrate to another place, there's an increase in poverty and homelessness, when these families can't find jobs right away. In Louisiana, developers are purchasing land on higher ground and outpricing middle-class and working-class people. So cities and governments need to govern these practices as well. So while social activists will work on the social services that we'll desperately need when climate change starts to impact large and larger groups of people, so while some climate change activists and scientists and social scientists are focusing on the social impacts of climate change, Another area of climate change adaptation is about the natural solutions, like I mentioned earlier. So this involves a lot of reforestation and um, protecting and conserving the areas of wildlife we still have left. Um, that means getting large corporations to agree to not develop large swaths of wildlife. I listened to one interview in which in the Netherlands... They are working on experiments in which they engineer forests by their coastline that will break up harsh waves of storms. Often, when large groups of people migrate to another place, there's an increase in poverty and homelessness when these families can't find jobs right away. In Louisiana, developers are purchasing land on higher ground and outpricing middle-class and working-class people. So cities and governments need to govern these practices. And that's what I've learned from that podcast, America Adapts. But then I wanted to look a little bit deeper at the topic of climate migration. And I read the article Migration and Adaptation to Climate Change by Robert A. McLemon and Lori M. Hunter. This is from 2009. So a lot of stuff has happened since then. So keep that in mind. But basically, they're research design was to look at migration patterns after natural disasters that have already occurred and see if they can find patterns and predict what would happen at large-scale migrations due to climate change-related disasters or long-term environmental effects like drought or famine. 
And what I learned is that climate migration is a lot more nuanced than I had previously heard just in my cursory podcast listening and article reading. So what McLemon and Hunter say is that environmental change and migration is rarely experienced in a simple stimulus response fashion. Instead, it's modified and shaped by the interaction of environmental changes or events with human, social, economic, and cultural processes. Which makes sense. Hardly anything happens in a vacuum. There are a lot of different factors that affect human behavior. They also make a difference between sudden onset events and slow onset events. Sudden onset events take place over short periods of time, like tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, extreme wind, rain, or snow events is how they define it. And in these cases, the people affected attempt to flee before the event occurs or evacuate during or post-event. Conversely, slow onset changes in conditions such as, I quote, drought, land degradation, and oscillations in precipitation patterns typically do not stimulate permanent relocation as a first-order household adaptation but instead they may temporarily relocate and then come back later. And they've seen this temporary relocation due to slow onset changes in towns and villages in West Africa. When they experience a dry season, then young single adults, typically male, will move to urban centers to get a job, and then they'll send money back to their families at home. And then when that season is ended, they'll return home. What was a cool part of their article is that they could track the migration patterns of multiple South American countries that experienced the same storm, but reacted in different ways. And so they could study the factors that impacted those migration patterns. For example, they looked at Hurricane Mitch, which was a powerful storm that in one week delivered almost a year's worth of rain to Central America. McLemon and Hunter say it killed up to 20,000 people and displaced 2 million others. And then they could look at countries of Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador, as well as Belize. And they saw a stark difference between the people who evacuated and the damage that happened to some countries compared to others. The countries of Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador had decades of prior civil conflict, which created a huge population of highly vulnerable people. They were living in impoverished households. They were living in hazardous lands in the countryside and in the urban centers. And so they say these hazardous lands included steep slopes prone to failure and easily flooded low-lying areas and the, their government's inability to take measures to alleviate the poverty made them extremely vulnerable to things like sudden onset events like storms. Due to the vulnerability of these people due to civil conflict, when a storm hit, their vulnerability were further exacerbated. In contrast, Belize, which didn't have the civil conflict and had social services to protect their most vulnerable people when they experienced a storm, they had a systematic evacuation of one-third of their population from the highly exposed areas of the country. And then when the hurricane struck, no deaths were reported. However, in Honduras, uh, where such capacity was lacking, they said, an estimated 18,000 people were killed, and it was due to those factors of those highly vulnerable populations in which the government didn't have a contingency plan, didn't have a risk management plan. So the people that could afford to evacuate, evacuated, 
and they didn't return. You'll hear about these people in Honduras and El Salvador and other Central American countries um, fleeing to Mexico and seeking asylum. The researchers say that Central American countries that took these uh, folks in grew more than 60% in the months immediately following Hurricane Mitch. And by 2003, U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services had granted temporary protection status to almost 150,000 migrants of Nicaraguan or Honduran origin under that special program that unfortunately was dissolved last year. And that's the point that these researchers were making, was that climate migration isn't just due to these storms or isn't due to drought or famine, really. It really depends on the demographics and the social services that are provided for vulnerable populations. McLemon and Hunter thought it was important to look at the Dust Bowl migration of the 1930s to get an idea of how government programs and social services could make it easier for migrants and also make it easier for the the receiving regions to adapt to this new population. So in the 1930s, Many areas of North Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, a little bit of Colorado and Missouri migrated to the west to California because of Dust Bowl conditions, because of drought. So during that time were the New Deal policies um, that had a large effect on rural well-being and drought-stricken areas. For example, some federal programs were specifically targeted at assisting drought migrants, such as the construction of migrant worker camps in Southern California by the Farm Security Administration. So it was safe, temporary housing for those people that are coming from the Great Plains. And so it allowed for these migrants to make these deep social networks to meet other migrants to find leads on jobs. And so they were in a much better place to set up a home and Uh, become a contributing member of their new society in California compared to like the instances of Hurricane Mitch in which a lot of people had to leave on foot and had to seek asylum in the United States and Mexico. I also read the article Crisis or Adaptation, Migration and Climate Change in a Context of High Mobility by Cecilia Toccoli. And together with McLemon and Hunter, they kind of tackle some misconceptions about migrants Right now, you may have noticed, uh, at least in America, that there is a a fervent political battle between accepting refugees, seeking asylum, and people coming into the United States. McLemon and Hunter specifically talk about the Dust Bowl migrants because at the time when the federal government was uh, creating these temporary housing and putting laws into place to stimulate the um, agricultural economy, and kind of take the burden off of farmers, Uh, this made a much more welcoming atmosphere for migrants into California. However, at the same time, state politicians and, and city governments in California were not very welcoming at all. It was definitely a battle between the federal government and the state and local government. And Tocoli especially addresses the topic of migration and how for a section of the population, it's very scary. It's very worrying. And she tries to soothe people's fear, I think. She uses the exact same case studies that uh, McLemon and Hunter do, but she draws a little less scary conclusion. But both papers point out that most climate migration is localized. It's people travel within regions. They don't necessarily travel internationally. 
McClellan and Hunter called this localized movements. Displacees travel to the nearest safe haven and then return to their homes as quickly as feasible. And in the, both cases of Hurricane Mitch and Hurricane Katrina, that was the largest category of evacuees, people that just went to the closest safe haven and then returned home as soon as they could. And then there's interregional migration, and that would be evacuees from Katrina going to Houston, Texas, most of them returning home, but also some people did settle there after the storm as well. And then there's interregional and international migration, in which uh, tens of thousands displaced by Hurricane Mitch uh, followed international migration routes, um, and then that small section went to the U.S. But that was a small section of the larger group of evacuees. One example that illustrates that most evacuees return, especially if there are social services and enough recuperating infrastructure after a storm, is that after the Kobe earthquake in Japan in 1995, 300,000 people were displaced, but within three months, only 50,000 had not returned home. Tokoli says that if there aren't any government infrastructure rebuilding after the storm, or if there aren't social services to get people back on their feet, that a lot of people cannot recover after a storm. For example, in 1991, when Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted, Many of the people displaced were still in temporary camps or squatter settlements after several years. So Tocoli concludes that whether migration will be the main response to sea level rise will depend on the capacity of communities and governments to respond through a range of options, such as increased protection infrastructure, the modification of land use, construction technologies, and managed retreat from the highly vulnerable areas. Now, when you listen to a podcast or you read an article about climate change, it can be definitely a downer because it is serious. However, it's not all bad. There are plenty of people working in the space trying to get large corporations and governments to pay attention. I recommend America Adapts the Climate Change podcast to learn more and to meet these wonderful geniuses who are working in this field. Research for this episode is in the show notes and on the blog factandsciencefiction.com. Support the show on patreon.com slash factandsci-fi and get some bonus content. Or give me a shout out on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at factandsci-fi. And lastly, thanks for listening.